Okay, I'm not going to lie. I think that for someone in my 60s, I am typically uncommonly tech-savvy. Slack, Trello, shortcuts on my MacBook Air. And when in doubt, I hunt for those infamous three dots at the top right of my screen. And for goodness sake, I run an online membership site for nonprofit leaders and invest deeply in digital marketing. I can't even use the word pixel in a sentence. See, I just did. You know, once upon a time, I thought if only we could increase accessibility to technology, we'd be on this faster path to equity. Did I think about it more deeply? About not just barriers of affordability and skills, but issues of speed relative to broadband? Uh-uh. Now, it is true that at least 42 million people in the United States have no access to technology, to the internet. Definitely a problem. But to think that technology somehow could solve issues of equity? Really? How narrow that vision is, was. How incredibly naive. My guests today are strategists, organizers, researchers, technologists, and authors of a new book, The Tech That Comes Next. They're people with a mission, working to answer the question, how can we change our relationship to technology? To who creates it? With whom? To who funds it and uses it? And to what ends we put it to use so that it can better support our work to change the world for the better? They have these three core beliefs. One, since humans create technology, it can't be neutral. Two, if tech is to be part of the solution of building a more equitable world, we must build technology with intention, inclusivity, and we must do it collaboratively. And three, my guests say the only path that leads to tech equity is by using models built on community-centered values. Now, I promise to ask them to talk about items two and three in detail. It seems to me that item number one just makes sense. What I really like about this book is that the authors understand that the key to finding the answers lies in asking the right questions, and many of them. This book is chock full of them. And don't worry, there are some bright, shining examples of work being done that can serve as a bit of a North Star as you consider yet another messy aspect of the world of nonprofits. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Amy's sample ward is driven by a belief that the nonprofit technology community can be a movement-based force for positive change. Their prior experience in direct service policy, philanthropy, and capacity-building organizations has fueled Amy's work to create meaningful, inclusive, and compassionate community engagement and educational opportunities for organizations around the world. As the CEO of N10, Amy inspires the N10 team and global partners to believe in community-generated change. Amy believes tech can help nonprofits reach their missions more effectively and equitably, but doing so takes intention and investment in training, access, and collaboration. Amy's had the privilege to present at conferences around the world, be a guest on podcasts such as Nonprofit Radio, and this one, and author contributions in various books and magazines. Amy's second book, Social Change Anytime, Everywhere, co-authored with Allison Capen, was a Terry McAdam Book Award finalist. But wait, there's more. Now, meet Afua Bruce. 
Her work lives in the intersection of strategy, technology, and public interest. She serves as the Chief Program Officer at Datakind, a nonprofit that works to harness the power of data science in the service of humanity. Afua joined Datakind from New America, where she was the Director of Engineering for the Public Interest Tech Program. At New America, Afua oversaw projects in tech and policy to improve outcomes in criminal justice reform, foster care, immigration, the opioid epidemic, and more. She also supervised the Public Interest Technology University Network. Previously, she spent several years leading science and tech strategy and program management in the federal government as the executive director of the White House's National Science and Technology Council, also a variety of positions at the FBI. Prior to joining the federal government, Afua started her career as an IBM software engineer. She holds a degree in computer engineering from Purdue University and an MBA from the University of Michigan. Together, Amy and Afua have joined forces to co-author a book out in March called The Tech That Comes Next, How Changemakers, Philanthropists, and Technologists Create an Equitable World. Who wants to listen to me? Let's talk to them. Let's listen to them. Thank you both for sharing your insights with our listeners today. Thanks, Joan. I'm excited for the conversation. And, you know, I would not be living the level of transparency I espouse to others if I did not say we already did this once and had a little tech snafu. So <laughs> even to us, it happens, you know, to like lower the bar for our listeners. And, you know, we had some really great jokes when you got to this point, but now it feels weird if we try to make the same jokes again. So, you know, thank you for having us. We're well, on round two to the people listening at home and it's going to be great. And Joan, this is a way and I am just so thrilled to be here again. Uh, to Amy's point, <laughs> and we're So looking forward to this conversation today and really just diving in deep to issues of technology and equity, some of our favorite subjects. (laughs) Well, so Amy was way too kind. It was my tech snafu. And it was really, I had to solve a really complex problem. I had to push the record button. The three dots didn't save me this time. Anyway, if you got the gist from these bios, these two individuals, have played in a lot of different and intersectional sandboxes, and they have a lot to tell us. So I'm going to get out of the way, and I'm going to go to Amy to start. Amy, tell me about the origin story of this new book. Lots of folks write about tech and equity. What is this book that others are not, right? What do you believe you're adding to the conversation? Go, Amy. Yes. So I think you are right that if you wanted to read a book that talked about equity in lots of different ways, there are lots of different books for that. If you want to read a book about technology, there are a lot of books about that. There are also books about technology and equity, the implications of our technology, emerging technologies, things like that. But what we felt didn't exist in a single book were the conversations kind of across the table both for the nonprofit staff or charity staff, both communities, the funders, the people making the technology, and how come those people aren't also the communities, (laughs) you know, all the way across all the different sides of the issue. There were books about a couple of those sides or one of those sides or one of those implications, but there wasn't a gathering place. And ultimately, that is what the book is about, right? That we can't fundamentally have any better outcomes If we are not acknowledging all of these sides exist, all of these different 
people and groups have an influence on what those outcomes are going to be, and that we have to collectively work to shift those things. So having a book that is only about one piece of it is important, especially because in that space, you can go much deeper than we you know, necessarily could. But what we wanted to add was that space, kind of like the starting ground for all of those conversations to find how they impact each other and where they intersect with each other. And you said, you know, in the intro that the book has a lot of questions because that was really what we wanted to do when Afu and I, you know, had that first call of like, could we write a book together? Oh my (laughs) gosh, are we really doing this? Oh, we're doing this. Oh my gosh, we're really writing, you know, 70,000 words. I can't believe we're doing this. What we said was, we want to make clear that there isn't an answer. We just want to ask a bunch of questions because if creating an equitable world was so darn easy, why haven't we done it, right? Clearly it isn't easy. And if we already knew what it was going to look like, then it would be easier to kind of draw the path to there. So if we're accepting that we don't know necessarily what it's going to look like, and we don't necessarily know how to get there, what's the genuine content of the book? It's asking the questions that'll help us figure that out. So Afua, let me ask you a variation on that then. Is that how you see the book as, I think Amy said, a starting point for people? That these are the questions we need to be asking and that there was a gap in just even making sure that people were asking the right questions? Yeah, absolutely. As we wrote this book, we really wanted to give people something to hope for and something to imagine. We really wanted to come alongside for all of the people who are doing so much great work in the social impact space. Mm -hmm to really think about what could a future more equitable world that includes technology look like. So often, so many of the conversations about technology and equity are about the negative effects and how it's been done incorrectly in the past and the harms that it's had. And those are absolutely valid points. We touch on those a little bit in the book as well. But we also wanted to make sure that we highlighted a lot of examples of people who are doing things well, of some social impact organizations who are doing things well, of some technologists who are doing some things well, philanthropists who are doing some things well, even policymakers who are doing some things well. We really wanted to help people see positive ways that technology can be intentionally applied to help create a more equitable world. And then to your point, we wanted to give people some questions to ask. I think a lot of times, even if people start to imagine what it might look like different, how do we get from where we are today to where we want to go in the future. And so often that's asking the right questions as you're funding in a partnership. It's asking the right questions and making the right design choices. as You're creating the code and designing that new technology that you're going to roll out. So we really wanted to give people some tools to start those conversations and to start those conversations well. Love it. I'm going to ask you a question and maybe we'll start with Afua and Amy. You can jump in if you like. I want to start with, I think, a pretty rudimentary question just to make sure we have leveled the playing field. So the question that I'd like to pose is talk a little bit about how discrimination does appear in data and technology. We know that it can't be neutral because it's created by humans. You all told me that at the very beginning of the book. But what does it look like? How does it appear? So we are all sort of starting from the same base. You want to start that one, Fua? And then maybe if you want to jump in, Amy, that'd be great. Yeah, happy to start. So discrimination in data and discrimination in technology really looks like different groups of people, usually historically marginalized, historically overlooked, historically excluded populations being just left out of the data, left out of the technology itself. And so perhaps if you've been collecting data on 
people who need access to food. That data only shows certain zip codes or that data only shows certain types of people that are there. There's a lot of research on the lack of women in data, the lack of trans people in data, the lack of brown and black people in data. And the problem with that is that when you've excluded data, you've excluded people from different data sets, data science, AI, machine learning, all of these fancy technologies that we use today really just speed up decision-making based on whatever information is fed. We use an example in the book of Amazon in looking to build an algorithm that would help them more quickly sift through all of the resumes they're getting as they're looking for who could be the perfect person to be an Amazon employee. They ran the algorithm and it told them, you know, that men, white men, especially make for the best employees. And is that inherently true? Or is that because their data that they're training on comes from years of the lack of balance that the tech industry has in data? And so that's, I think, just one example of what it means when we say discrimination in data and how it can lead to actual harms. In this case, people not getting jobs that they may be qualified for because of the data and because of the way technology just can really just enhance the biases and the stereotypes that we have in society. Amy, you want to jump in and like talk also a little bit about how tech gets designed as well? Yeah, I was going to connect this back in the intro, you know, acknowledging that at least 42 million people in our country aren't online. Every technology decision that an organization, especially a nonprofit, is making is already potentially inequitable, right? If you think that your mission is necessarily saying you're going to serve, none of those people are in that 42 million (laughs) that aren't online. You know, you're probably guessing wrong. And so if your community, at least members of that community you're working with, aren't online and you're currently saying, oh, all of our programs are over Zoom, you've already decided that it's going to be inequitable, right? Right. So even technology decisions, if you're not thinking about the realities of your community, you're kind of setting yourself up to fail on that piece. But again, an organization, a nonprofit organization, for example, that's saying, okay, well, we'll just take whatever product it's available or it's free for us, and we're going to use it without realizing that it wasn't made for your purpose. It wasn't necessarily made in consultation with you or your community, right? So what are the implications of that? A lot of folks feel like, well, it was free. It's what we need. It holds data if it's a database, for example, but that still comes at a cost. To Afua's point, there are a lot of folks who have identities who are not acknowledged, let alone held with care in the databases of many companies right? And so if you're saying that you do hold that community with care, and here's your profile, please complete it. And you get to choose one of three races and one of two genders, like maybe your message isn't coming through, right? That you really hold that community with care. But that's because you weren't part of making that tool, you weren't part of maybe customizing it for your organization's use. So even before it's gotten to the community, again, you've already kind of set the bar that it's going to be inequitable, right? Right. I like to imagine what questions listeners might have. And so let's just assume I run a fairly large nonprofit. How does your book help me? Let's assume I need more tech, but funders see it as overhead. So I can't get the funding for it. They don't see it as what it actually is, which is program expense, because it's a way to build your power through bringing more people to your organization. But set that aside, let's assume that folks I serve don't have that much access to tech. And let's assume that board members don't really get the need for technology and issues of tech equity. 
and it's not even close to being on their radar. How does what you've learned, how can you help me standing in those shoes? I am clear that your book is filled more with questions than answers. Is part of it just starting the conversation or can you offer me sort of a picture of how I might approach the kinds of challenges that you raise in the book as someone who runs a nonprofit? Totally. This is Amy. I'll answer first, but I know that Afua likely has great thoughts to contribute as well. I think you're right that the book has a lot of questions and you're right that it is trying to illustrate some of those implications. So you have the context behind why you might ask your funder that question or why you might ask a potential technology vendor certain questions before you sign a contract with them. But what we really want the book to help with is for folks who aren't used to having conversations about technology be related to equity. Folks who are used to saying like, I need a CRM. I need a website. I just need this technology to be here. That reading the book and maybe, you know, using those questions in meetings or conversations is the practice of getting all of us to see that technology and equity are inextricably connected so that we kind of build up the strength, the muscle memory, just through practice of thinking about technology, potential situations or opportunities through this constant of whatever I decide here, or even the process my organization uses to make this decision is itself determining how equitable my outcomes may be. And what we've experienced, both of us in lots of different organizations and sectors, is that there isn't a massive pushback to the idea that technology is part of our inequitable outcomes. It's just that there isn't a lot of practice for having these conversations, that equity conversations are often equity conversations over here, right? About the like equity initiative. They are not every single day conversations whenever we're talking about technology. And even the pandemic really, I mean, we know this every single podcast, every single think piece is like unprecedented, pivot, pandemic, (laughs) all of those words happen. But what I really witnessed, and I think Afua did too, was technology when the pandemic started and everyone was like, oh, we'll just turn to technology, made very clear how unpracticed so many people and sectors and organizations were in connecting equity with technology. That technology was an automatic solution was proof that folks were not used to recognizing it's inequitable. Right. Afua, you want to jump in? Yeah. So many organizations, as Amy said, were ill-equipped for that conversation or tried to just jump into implementation without thinking through how do we make some of these trade-offs? How do we run some more inclusive decision-making processes and really think about our technology? So whether the organization is a small organization or a large organization, those same questions exist. And really it's how can we use technology to really extend our mission? How are we using technology to extend our social impact mission and recognizing that mission sort of execution and technology can't be two separate conversations. We really need to intertwine them. And so I'd say for the larger organizations, you know, it's some of just going back to basics, really thinking about who is your community? Have you talked to them? As Amy pointed out, have you made sure that you have those design options for them, for them to even engage with the technology when you run it out? If the people you're serving don't have access to technology, 
Are you as an organization using technology in equitable ways internally to make better decisions, to make sure that you are reaching still the people that you're serving, the communities that you're serving in equitable ways, that you're touching on them, that you're really using the resources you have in the best ways to serve the people that you say you want to serve. And so technology can, when you think about what equity means, when you think about how to deploy it intentionally, technology can help with that, but it does require a lot of intentionality. It requires some time and it requires some flexibility. You both are all over this. It also requires a lot of listening to the community and engaging the community that that feels really essential to everything that you talk about in this book. I think there's this feeling sometimes when I talk with organizations, especially opportunities where I'm doing like a training, you know, we're in a room together, there's 20 of us, everybody's kind of building some good rapport and sharing really what they're thinking. And this isn't just in the US, this has been, you know, across Europe and Australia, like all over the place. There's this feeling that somehow, because we're the staff of the organization, the second we're not the ones making all of the decisions, or we're not exclusively the ones in the meeting where the decision was made, that we're like not doing our job. And so our job is to make sure that we're the container for all the decisions, which is like, A, I would argue definition, like you're understanding that wrong. And B, how could you possibly make the best decision if it's like five of you? Right. (laughs) Like just by the probability of math, wouldn't the better decision come with more inputs and more understanding? And why not that understanding be the community that actually has to do the thing or has to experience the thing or whatever? Let's go back to the beginning. Why is it actually best that we do this by ourselves? I don't know. I don't know what that is. So let's talk about money. Money's always a big player at the table. How big a factor do you think money is in our ability to make this journey a priority? I'm not even saying successful, just a priority. Does the kind of change that we seek here always demand financial resources? Let me start with Afua. I would say that change often demands resources, and this is no different. We have a chapter in the book dedicated to funders, and whether those are philanthropists, whether those are venture capital firms, whether it's the private sector, a variety of different funders can have a large impact in how the social impact organizations decide what to invest in and what they can actually take the time to do. So I think that when it comes to thinking about how money affects this ability to really create a more equitable world, we can't ignore the effects of money. It drives a lot of the conditions that have gotten us to why you have black and brown people not represented in data sets of why you have women not represented in technology solutions and not designed around from everything from seatbelts to a whole host of other different technologies that we interact with. And I think what's exciting, though, is we're starting to see more and more foundations, more and more companies think about and start to ask the question of how could we make a difference? And I'd say, you know, it comes to some of the stuff we've already touched on today. How do you really view and therefore fund technology as a way to extend an organization's mission and not simply as overhead? How do you make sure that you fund the time for organizations to be in their community to really get feedback from the community, to get requirements and interest from the community, and then to do that testing so that you're actually designing things that people will use and people will need. 
So how do you think about that? How do we think about compensating for time for people to invest the time in having these conversations, whether they're at a social impact organization, whether they're members of the community or wherever they are in this sort of ecosystem? How do you think about compensating people for their time? I think is important. And then what do we think about sort of what a return on investment is? Is it always what simply makes the most money? Is there a way to think about what other measures of impact we have? Is We look more at how many more people are fed, how many more people are living in secure homes and how many more people have access to the internet so they can look for jobs or communicate with family and friends. Let's also think about how we sort of define success. I love that. And I do so much appreciate that chapter where you all talk about funders, because how you frame this with funders, that's in your control. And I really feel like this podcast and the conversations we have in the book enable you, are giving you tools to begin to reframe how you talk about technology with your funders. I think we do a massive disservice in the nonprofit sector by playing into that technology thing is over there. I think we are as much to sort of blame about how that got boxed up and put over there and that it's not the funder's job necessarily to come up with that, but it's really for them to listen to you talk about how technology legitimately extends your mission and can have the kinds of outcomes that you described, Afua. Next question is the idea of building this kind of culture inside your organization. Amy, talk a little bit about what you think building a tech culture in your organization looks like. Sure. This is something, of course, we talk about at N10. I talk about in so many spaces all of the time. And I think it really starts with acknowledging like it's 2021. (laughs) Technology. Right. I mean, you're probably at least emailing your people that you're working with, right? Even if you're not using what we would consider more like sophisticated enterprise tools as an organization, but you're still using Eventbrite or you know, like right. Doodle, just like tools to operate, you're using technology. And I think once organizations acknowledge every single staff person is using technology, you have to acknowledge you already have a tech culture. It's probably just real bad. Right? Like it's probably just not a positive tech culture. So the acknowledgement is the first piece. Okay, so everybody is using technology. We clearly have a culture around this, but it's not spoken about and it's maybe not very positive. So you don't have to create the culture. You just have to change the culture. Ah. And culture change is something that we understand how to do, right? So I think inside an organization, really powerful tools for setting the tone of that tech culture include acknowledging technology management and ownership and use in every single staff person's job description. Right. Then it's not a guess of which tools am I meant to have learned during my onboarding. Oh, and I can turn around and say, hey, you didn't teach me this or you didn't teach it to me well enough to be successful. But when they're not ever spoken about, like explicitly in your job description, Staff don't really have that lever of accountability to say, hey, I can't do my job well. You haven't trained me. Right. And once it's written in everyone's job description, it's so easy to see that technology-related decision-making is happening across the team. And that changes how you budget for technology, who needs to be in those conversations, right? Like when it's actually every different department, that's very different, right? 
So I think just these little pieces of acknowledging and naming how and where technology is being used, who's managing it, who's making the decisions around it across the organization, instead of like, it is definitely pretend. There is no organization where the quote unquote IT manager is the only person using and managing technology. So get past that. And then you're able to much more directly and intentionally influence the technology culture because you're saying, hey, everybody does need to be trained on technology all the time. Hey, this is part of everybody's job. If we're making a big decision, we should all be at that table together. You know, you set yourself up to shift it positively together. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we are having a conversation about equity and technology, and We have a dynamic duo here today, Amy Sample Ward, who is the CEO of N10, and Afua Bruce, who is the Chief Program Officer at Datakind, a nonprofit that works to harness the power of data science in the service of humanity. And they together have authored a book called The Tech That Comes Next, How Changemakers, Philanthropists, and Technologists Create an Equitable World. So I want to talk a little bit about community for a few minutes. And Afua, I'll let you take this one. You talk about the power and importance of community and collaboration in this work. And I think the phrase centering community in your strategy is something that you talk about. Talk a little bit about that. How do you center community in your organization's tech strategy? Absolutely. Well, it starts, first of all, by recognizing the communities that you're serving and what communities you're talking about, right? We have to start by recognizing just humans live in communities. So if we're doing any type of work at all, we are doing work in community. We are doing work for communities. We are doing work with communities. We're handing over work to communities. And so I think just starting from there and naming those different communities that you're partnering with, that you are developing with, that you are transferring technology over to or transferring services over to, naming those communities is the first thing. And then once you've named them, talk to them figure out what their interests are, (laughs) figure out what they need and document what those needs are and think about how that shows up in the work that you're doing. You know, it starts with those basic things, but then also thinking through what does it mean to take care and to exercise care for these communities that you're serving, for these communities that you're partnering with. And so that might mean making sure that everyone in that community has a way to access the services. So if everyone has access to phones that allow them to text a lot and you have only developed a really fancy app, you are probably not meeting your community's needs. Right. Right. And so thinking through things like that, but also thinking through how you've designed around that community in that process. So if you're a technologist and you want to make sure that you're creating a way for people to be engaged and for services to be equally distributed. And you know that you are serving a neighborhood that, let's say, is 95% Black. And all of your algorithms are built with test data of people that are mostly white or any race other than Black. You may want to reconsider if you are actually serving 
And if you've actually partnered with that community that back to step one, you have actually named and recognized that you're serving. And then I think it's really important as well to recognize people who are both directly touched by whatever services you're delivering or whatever technology you're using and who may be caught up in it. So as you mentioned, I used to work for the FBI. And so if hypothetically, of course, um, someone was developing a technology for law enforcement, and only considered the law enforcement as the community, as the only people who are interacting there, you would miss everyone in that community who is being policed or who interacts with law enforcement, who will also have a say in what that technology looks like and what the implications are. So also really, again, thinking through not just who is directly using your technology, but who also may be affected by your technology or your services that you're deploying. So I want to go back to something that I talked about, I grabbed from your book at the very beginning about the three core beliefs, and I promised I would come back to it. My guests say the only path leading us to tech equity is by using models built on community-centered values. Amy, talk a little bit about that and how it connects with what Afua was just talking about. Yeah, you know, I think there are a few examples in a few different chapters that really kind of outline this was the community's need and the community's values. And so how did the organization or even organizations respond to that need versus organizations saying, oh, we want to do something and here's what we're going to do, right? And hopefully the community shows up when we offer it, but letting the community lead just as a general model, I think is important. But, you know, one of those examples to get it, what Afu was talking about is in a later chapter, And without going into like explaining the entire thing, we're doing a read aloud here. (laughs) The fast recap is communities that do not have regular access to power and light, meaning once the sun goes down, like it's dark, right? right? There's not electricity in their homes. And the communities, you know, has some community members who are like, we can figure this out, right? Like light bulbs can't be that difficult. We can do this. We can like put it together. And they're working with folks in the U.S. and across time zones and backgrounds and privileges and all the rest. But anytime those in the U.S. in privileged engineering situations, right, are like, oh, we could do this. Actually, the community says, yeah, but like, have you ever slept in a room with that kind of electricity running? It's very loud. Have you ever tried to maintain it? It's very expensive, right? So it isn't just how do we solve things? That's not what we're asking in the book. That's not, I think, what any of us are asking in life, right? It's like, how do we actually solve it correctly? And the determination of if it was solved correctly is only determined by the community that is the one with it, right? That it is going to be their need met or their historical oppression alleviated or whatever, right? So it isn't just saying, oh, our community really loves puppies. So anything we do is going to have a puppy image on it. It's like, This is for and by and because of our community. So how do we build in those checks and balances and evaluation processes all throughout and well beyond to ensure it really did meet the need? It really did solve the problem. I want to move in this closing section of the conversation to some real live examples, bringing it to life. And first, there are, you know, a number of large platforms. I know you talk about the executive director of the Loan Repayment Assistance Program of Minnesota and her struggle with Facebook. She's not the only one who struggles with Facebook. And I assume that you do not propose a solution for the Debaskins of the world about 
her organizational values and whether they align with those of Facebook. But I guess I wonder if there are platforms that I'm going to ask this naively that you kind of just have to deal with. Or do you as authors sort of really advocate for sort of mobilizing against the sort of these big platforms where the values don't align with the community of your organization? This is Amy. I'll go first and let Fua share as well. But I think it would be on brand to say we don't answer that question. And instead, (laughs) we offer you many questions that you need to answer for yourself because ultimately there isn't a single answer. Right. You know, I think the questions like 4D, this executive director of a loan repayment organization, the questions that I, you know, encourage D to ask or encourage any organization to ask about Facebook or any other platform, right, is who are your community members and are they made more vulnerable or is their vulnerability made more visible by participation in that platform? Yep. Next is their interaction with you and your publicly visible stated mission exacerbating vulnerabilities that they may then be connected to, right? Are you providing free immigration advice on a platform that is then able to track off of those keywords and put some data pieces together, right? So is your participation there potentially making more vulnerable community members that you are seeking to support? Are you educating them about how to use the platform safely to mitigate that risk or are you not? And is there an alternative for you to use? It may be that your organization provides incredibly important, incredibly valuable services to people who are incredibly vulnerable, but you need to use Facebook because it's a place where they might find you. So keeping those vulnerabilities and the risks in mind could mean You don't host your events on Facebook and you don't ask people to sign up for things. You say, here's our page. We hope you find it. We've got great like SEO. (laughs) You know, we're active and posting all the time, but every single post says, don't follow our page, go to our website and connect in a secure location, right? Or sign up for our services over here in a different place, Mm -hmm. right? So there could be other ways that you use that because you know the community you're trying to reach is on that platform. But you're not trying to say, great, so like, let's do all of our activity here and make a bunch of private groups and have everybody's data tracked, right? Like you can knowingly and intentionally still navigate spaces that we're not going to deny lots of people are on Facebook, right? Right. But that doesn't mean that you need to be deeply invested in your program delivery and the data that comes with that program delivery being contained in that space. I just want to say to people who are listening, Amy's answer to that question is actually emblematic of what this book does. Don't you think, Amy, what you just did, right, is I'm not going to solve your problem for you, but I'm actually going to help you ask the right questions to come to the best decision for the people you serve. Full stop, right? Yeah. Love it. Love it. So you just made a wonderful pitch for why everybody who's listening needs to have a copy of this book. I want to shine a light on Either of you can pick or you can each do on whatever you like, but an organization that you shine a light on in the book that you feel like is, you know, not doing the right thing, but sort of making the kinds of choices, asking the questions, making some headway in this regard. I'd love for listeners to leave with sort of an example of something to shoot for. Who'd like to go? Afu, you got one for me? I will gladly start. 
I think one of the things that was so much fun about writing with this book was just getting to talk to so many people who are doing such exciting work all around the world. So I will try and pick just one, maybe two, because again, there's so many great organizations we spoke with, but one that comes to mind to start is Code the Dream, which is a nonprofit. I believe they're based in North Carolina. It is a nonprofit and they work with mostly young adults who are immigrants or children of immigrants or people of color or people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, train them to code and then sort of turn them loose on public interest technology. So really trying to pair them with issues and technologies that match the issues that they're personally interested in and invested in because of their background. And so In talking with one of the Code the Dream founders, she gave an example of a student in their classes who was a child of migrant farmers. And this individual then was able to work with migrant communities across the U.S. and start to create an app that would tell people who provide services, whether it's food, clothing, housing, and more, to migrant farmers when these groups were coming into the area, the needs they had at the time, so that the needs that the migrant farmers had could be met more easily and effectively by the people providing the services. And so really just being able to connect with the community to do those user interviews that people were doing, getting the requirements as to what was actually needed and thinking of the community, both as the migrant farmers who are receiving the services, but also those organizations providing the food, providing the clothing, providing more and developing a solution that could really work there. So I think that to me was just one example that really resonated with me of really thinking through how do we connect with communities? How do we really center communities? How do we make sure that when we think of who can design technology, we're not going back to the same pool, but we are really empowering a wide range of people. In this case, people of all genders and of all different ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds to be technologists, to design solutions for their communities that lead to real change in their lives. That's really, really inspirational. I'm thinking if I go to Amy, she might have a story to tell. I think, you know, one that came up in my mind for me when we were talking earlier and you were asking about, you know, can people that aren't your staff, you know, be in these decisions? I was thinking about there's a case study, an example in the book that we talk about a nonprofit called Rescuing Leftover Cuisine. And they have a really incredible example of it isn't just like waiting for your tools to break. Their development roadmap of like, how can we improve our systems, especially the platform that enables the partners to donate the food and volunteers to pick it up and all of that is actively determined by all of those participants, by the donors, by the volunteers, by the recipient organizations getting to say, I wish that the platform could do this, or I have this new need where I need to be able to post this. And all of that comes into one place where they work together to decide, okay, what's the biggest priority? What can be developed next? How do we roll this out? So I love that example because, you know, we're not losing power by having inclusive processes. We are actually building power as the facilitator that is trusted to bring all of those voices together as the organization, right? And like that single Trello board that they have, right? That says like volunteers need this new feature or donor partners need to be able to do this. The organization has become the facilitator, the trusted host of this process. And it has meant really great outcomes for them. Right. And the Trello board captures the different ideas of features 
so that someone who had an idea, someone's voice was heard and found its way to another piece of software (laughs) (laughs) that captures the to-do lists of how to continually enhance and grow this platform in a way that benefits all the users. Yeah. Those are just two of many examples that you're going to find in this book. So it's not just filled with questions. It illustrates how using the questions can drive more impact, can drive better decision-making, can drive more intentionality and more community engagement. This has been a terrific conversation. It says in Amy's bio that she's driven by a belief that the nonprofit tech community can be a movement-based force for positive change. I think Afua Bruce would say exactly the same thing. So thank you to two movement builders. You can add that to the long list of technologists, strategists, philanthropists, blah, 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 and authors of a book that I strongly recommend called The Tech That Comes Next, How Changemakers, Philanthropists, and Technologists Create an Equitable World. Amy Afua, thank you so much for sharing your insights, your energy, and your commitment to making the nonprofit sector a more equitable one. Thank you both. Thanks so much, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, thank you so much for the work you do every day. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.